under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Welcome to it. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, so humbly named after me, Joey Clark. Yes, please excuse my false modesty, because I, I really do have the two geniuses that I think the heartbeat behind the Cloverdale Playhouse, along with others. I don't want to just, I don't want y'all to give out false modesty either, because it's a big thing. I think you got to be. I don't oh, thank you. I no thank you. Not thank you. Thank you. But it's Greg Thornton and Sarah Thornton. Hello, Joey. How are you? How Thanks are for having us. You caught me in a weird mood tonight, folks. Yeah, lots of coffee. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> lots right. of. I swear it's coffee. Yeah. It's not nothing like that. I would never do that on air. Very and dangerous. I, and, <laughs> indeed. So that's a great play, talk radio. Oh, really? Yeah. I've done. That's Eric, a play. Eric Bogosian. It was a film, but he wrote, was, he wrote it as a play. Wow. Oh, something worth looking into. Okay. Eric I've, Bogosian, talk radio. This I this is why I like bringing on guests. I'd actually get to learn. Yeah. If it was just me up here talking, oh, I would get tired of it. I'm sure the audience would too. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's quickly get to the uh, play. Oh, and hello, Sarah. Hi. I had I turned on the wrong mic oh, earlier. Oh no. Again, it long day. Like I was in another room. Yeah. Hi, Joey. I'm in timeout already, and I just got here. See, and I was surprised. I, I didn't know you were coming tonight. And I'm a surprise. I'm happy that you're here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasant surprise. Thank you. Always nice to be on the show, Joey. Indeed, indeed. And uh, so I have the two Thorntons here, father and daughter. It's true. Back together again. So this, the reason, I suppose, for our visit is uh, that it's St. Patrick's Day weekend coming up. Indeed. And we're a very proud Irish family. Um, but one of the things that the Cloverdale Playhouse does, we used to do a tradition every St. Patrick's Day of a, a thing called Irish Voices, which was a collection of bits from Irish writers and Irish songs that would people would perform throughout the evening. It was a great night. It was beautiful. Um, but last year, we decided to maybe try something a little different. Okay. Um, and, and embrace their many, many, many brilliant Irish playwrights out there in, in existence. And so we thought... You know, we were tossing around a bunch of great Irish plays that would be fun to read for St. Patrick's Day. And, and so we settled on a play called The Weir, uh, which Dad here, Greg, uh, directed, um, which takes place in an Irish pub. And they're all telling ghost stories. And it's a it was it's a, a great, great night. Play. You know, we all sat around. Connor like, McPherson. Connor play. McPherson plays. Mm -hmm. we, we sort of decorated the theater like the pub. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, it was a great way. To, it was a beautiful and a great turnout and a great reception. Um, so we decided to continue that tradition this year with another great Irish playwright. Um, and Frank McGinnis is, is my fave. And this is one of my favorite plays in existence, not just an Irish playwright, but one of my favorite plays ever. Um, play so is... It's called Someone Who'll Watch Over Me by okay. Frank McGinnis. Uh, three men 
one Englishman, one American, and one Irishman are... It's, an, are, it's like the old joke. It starts like a joke. An Englishman and an Irishman and an American together uh, are in a cell in Lebanon. Is how the joke starts, but then it sort of stops being funny after that. But this is some of it's quite funny, but and it is based off a true true event. Yes, it's based on a uh, book. an Evil Cradling is the title by an Irish writer named Brian Keenan, who was held hostage in uh, Beirut, Lebanon from 1990, uh, sorry, 1991, oh, that doesn't sound right, it's four and a half years, 1986, 1991, excuse me. Okay. He was one of many hostages among 104, I was doing a little research on that, during the 10-year span when the... When the Shiite Muslims and the Hezbollah and any number of terrorist groups were deciding, this is going to be our statement now. We're just going to put people in jail and torture them. Or, God help us, kill some of them. There were at least nine hostages who died over those ten years. But Brian Keenan uh, was teaching literature at the American University in Beirut. Coming home from classes one night, just got picked up, thrown in a car thrown in a cell man and he and it, it, this book is extraordinary because i know it sounds and it is very grim the situation i can't think of anything worse than that in someone's life to be just taken away from everything you had anybody you cared about are just gone and thrown into the darkness four by six foot cells by yourself and oh. solitary he was for the first five months and constantly being moved, they would come in dead of night. He thought he never knew whether it was day or night. They throw a hood over his head, throw him in the trunk of a car, move him somewhere else. And he was un- wasn't the only one. But what happened with uh, Brian Keenan during his uh, time as a hostage? Five and a half months into it, maybe a year later, he was joined by a John McCarthy, who was an English journalist. And they stayed together in this cell for quite a long time. And um, so Brian Keenan wrote this book when he got out about his five-year ordeal as a hostage. And it's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Well, and I was about to say when you were mentioning him being in solitary for five and a half months. At least. At- periodically throughout his time in, um, in Beirut, he was... They would take them out, throw them in a cell by themselves, put them back together again, move them. It's it's part of the it's part of the torture. Well, and I was about to say, just as a knee jerk reaction, not thinking through, how do you keep your sanity there? But oh. is not sanity part of the play? Oh, absolutely, it's a big topic. There. Well, and it's mm-hmm. and it's certainly a prevalent uh, theme in in the play. Uh, you know, all three of them have been there for different periods of time. The American's been there the longest. And how you see them trying to keep their sanity, the times when it slips, the times when it goes away completely, you know, and all of them have their moments where you think, oh boy, because there's there's nothing. They don't know whether it's day or night. And to me, I think the scariest part of it is the constant threat on the other side of that door. Right. At any moment. They could come in and get you and, and kill you at any moment. They could decide to stop feeding you or let you use the bathroom or any. You know, they're out there listening all the time. Well, and it reminds me of a conversation I was having last week, I believe, 
about the memories that seem to really stick with you. Unfortunately, it's not always the like good ones where you had a good laugh. And I think that's partly why when old friends get together, you share those stories. You, get, you remember them when you're in the presence of people that made those memories with you. But the ones that seem to stick are when you are going through some great pain or suffering and when you're taking responsibility in life. But I'd imagine it's folks in great pain and suffering and they're trying to figure out how can we put our arms around this situation we're in. And it's not just about the... Really, it focuses on the people together in captivity. Though. Right. It's not the the unseen captors or they're out there and that constant threat's there, but it's about how these people who are complete strangers overcome their differences. And they have a lot of differences. They're all from very different backgrounds and countries and their mentality. All, all professionals. All professionals. All, but all in, in working in Lebanon. One's a doctor. The American is a doctor. The Irishman, um, Frank McGinnis obviously took liberty being a playwright. The Irishman is a journalist, and the Englishman is a professor, professor of Middle English and old literature. And so very well-educated men. Very well-educated. And, and having absolutely... This, part of this amazing thing to me about what happened to these hostages, it, this is a terrorist group that, that just would grab people off the street, sort of willy-nilly. They weren't like, oh, we're going to target this. They did take important prisoners. They took American broadcasters. They took a couple of uh, diplomats. But most of the prisoners were people who had nothing to do with any of the political situation, nothing to do with the war that was going on in the Mideast, the whole Syrian crisis, all the whole stuff with the Iranian, the Republic of Iran, which added to the, to me, I think, not only the mystery of why they were there, but the madness. Of, was this makes no sense. It's one thing to know, oh, okay, I'm going to get a shot. It's going to hurt. I'm going to go through some pain. It's worth it. There's a reason about it. But when it's right. pain and suffering for no good reason, no apparent reason. it drives people insane. Well, and right. There's no bargaining. There's nothing right. they had to give or offer. They weren't people of power politically. They weren't people that... They they were chosen for no reason, really. Right. And the it, the only thing I've read that maybe is close to this is uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning uh, about being in a concentration camp. He was put yeah. in Auschwitz. And he said the people that survived, I mean, at the end of the day, those people who had faith. Yeah. But the people that also got along for good ways were people who had a sense of humor. Um, does this play into the play at all? Oh, it's full of the, mm -hmm. the play. is full of humor. I mean, that... Uh, it particularly becomes a thing between the three of them. All the various games they play, the fantasies they involve themselves in, the jokes. I mean, the Irishman's got a constant answer for everything. He's a. Sarah continues to tell me in the play that he's a bully, and I and I <laughs> guess he is. But he's doing it. It's his way of surviving. It's a tactic. And God help. What happens early on in the play? is an Englishman is thrown into the cell. Well, you put an Englishman and an Irishman together, anything can happen. <laughs> this goes back hundreds of thousands of years. Oh, at least. It's just, it's blood, it's blood feud. Well, and it reminds me of, uh, when I read the synopsis, I thought of Christopher Hitchens, and he talked about, with uh, racism, 
uh, that if you want to see how absurd racism is, go to, say, a country where you don't know anything right. and you wouldn't be in any of their categories. You know, what are these people blabbering right. about and why are they uh, hating one another? But it also reminded me of uh, he had a friend who was a Jewish atheist traveling in, I believe, Northern Ireland when there's still the IRA and things going on. He gets pulled over, this Jewish atheist. And uh, the guy says, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? I'm not even going to try to do the accent. Are you Protestant or are you Catholic? He goes, I'm a Jewish atheist. He goes, well, are you a Protestant or a Catholic right. Jewish That's atheist? That's all that matters. It doesn't make yeah. sense to some people. Yeah. And, and if you don't have a sense of irony or a sense of humor, you might take things that literally. Right. right. Well, the thing, too, that happens, uh, it's very much a part of Brian Cannon's book. And it, and it sort of works a little bit in the character of Edward, who I play as the Irishman. Um, it certainly does in his um, his head banging that he does with the Englishman Michael um, is the whole thing about the the troubles they always refer to them as in Ireland. They were still going on in the eighties. Right. I mean, and when Brian Keenan was released in nineteen ninety one, the day after that was the signing of the peace the Easter Peace Accord between Northern Ireland and Ireland. It's just one of those bizarre ironies wow. that probably mostly only an Irishman would find, well, that's kind of amusing. Why didn't this happen before? Part of the thing that happens, too, is what is going on outside? When the Englishman mm. is thrown into cells, isn't it? It's like the very first question that's asked. Well, the the American had been in there for four months four at that months. point, and the Irishman for two months, yeah. and then they're joined by this newbie. And they're but what are what are they doing to release us? What are they doing out there to get to help us? Right. Yeah. And his answer is nothing. <laughs> they're going about their lives, and yeah. and that right there, it's that's a thing. Hope is a very big thing in this play. Um, how they hold on to it, how they reclaim it how they try to give it to each other when they lose it. Um, but but that's how it sort of begins. The play begins with this moment of um, a glimmer of hope that's immediately gone. Mm. And then how do they build each other back up to stay hopeful? They you know, and, and, and that's where the humor comes in. They find all these beautiful and hilarious ways of of letting their minds wander and their imaginations it's almost childlike they play all these games of make believe and uh i don't want to give them all away cuz they're just so wonderful but but it is there's the things that they do they sing they they make up movies in their heads they you know all sorts of things to try to pass the time one and to try to keep their sanity too um but the way that they overcome or try to overcome their differences and their prejudices and their fear, right. you know, and and Dad's Edward, Dad's character, is a bully, but in the sense that when you're afraid, bullies, it's like a formula, right? They feel in, an inferior or afraid or less than, and so they lash out at someone they think is weaker than they feel, yes. so that they feel less weak. But the bullying is, and it, it is, and. It, but it's not. There's nothing physical about it. It's an intellectual battle. They can't even. Touch, mm. They can't reach each other. They're all chained to walls the entire play. They can't. Yeah. They cannot touch. Oh, wow. They don't. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. The entire wow. play is all. That's they part cannot, of the torture. They can't touch each other. They can't reach each other. Well, I, and I imagine that makes this. Uh, this is a play reading you're doing it's Saturday night. Mm -hmm. It's a stage reading. Right? So I'd imagine it makes the reading even more effective because I'd, when you put on a full production of this, I'd imagine it's. A, you don't have scene changes, so to speak. No, they don't leave. 
Right. No. So I, I encourage folks because I feel like if we keep talking about this, uh, we're going to give stuff away, or I'm going to ask y'all to give stuff away. But oh, that's okay. <laughs> I again, I want to point out uh, again date, time, how folks can get tickets. Can they just show up off the street? This yep. sort of thing. Well, yep. of course, walk <laughs> walk ups are always welcome. Um, but it'll be this Friday, the sixteenth, and then Saturday, the seventeenth, St. Patrick's Day, at seven thirty, both evenings. Um, and the tickets, you can get them online at the Cloverdale Playhouse website, cloverdaleplayhouse.org, or you can call the box office at 262-1530, and we hope you'll join us. So are y'all often, I mean, you're father and daughter, but are y'all often working together? I'd imagine so. Not very much, no. No? It's been a pleasure. Short, short-lived, unfortunately. Yeah. No, we haven't done... Gosh, Sarah, I don't know. One of the very, the very first things Sarah and I did together was uh, To Kill a Mockingbird at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. Sarah was scout. When, when was And I this? was, well, um, do I was your, 11, you could do your math, so I guess. Math. I was I was Atticus in that wonderful story of Harper Lee's. So that's the very first thing we ever did. I mean, I've seen Sarah do a number of things, but that was the first thing we ever did together. And then it was a long time we never shared the stage, but we were in the same, another play, Cymbeline by Shakespeare. Um, when, I was in the first Sarah act. Sarah was in the uh, Master of Fine Arts program at the Alabama Shakespeare wow. Festival. I was in the company. So, so I, my character left after the first act, and Dad's character started at the top of the second act. So we'd basically high five as I was leaving well. the was theater, and he was yeah, coming. She in. was on her way home. I was going I'll to get work. Show. How was the show? Yeah, yeah. So we haven't done actually not too much. No. And so then first, you directed you directed as you like it in New York when yeah, I played Rosalind, which was really fun. Yeah. And then now I'm sort yeah, of directing you. It's no, a reading. More than, it's not quite still, the same. First time but. I've ever been directed by my daughter, which is. Is a, is if I love it. It's an interesting experience, trying to be very careful to navigate the uh, that uh, that territory. <laughs> well, no, it was well. No, I mean part of we've talked about this before, Joey and Sarah certainly understands this as well as anybody I know. But the director actor collaboration is mostly about trust. Hmm. First of all, you you want to work on a good piece of material, which. We absolutely have in Frank McGinnis's play, Someone to Watch Over Me. So you trust the text, you use the text, text is your Bible, tell the story clearly, stay out of the way, serve the text. But you want to be in a room where there's trust so that you can try things, you can fail miserably, and no one's going to sit there in judgment on you saying, well, that was really awful. We have to play the fool before you usually get better. You absolutely have to fall down. Yeah, yeah. and That's but you want to be able to do that knowing no one on the other side of that table who, who actually cast you in it is going to make a judgment about that. You right. know, right. And then together you find the story. And without that trust, I mean, that's true of any work. Right. You want to trust your colleagues. You want to be able to go in and do your work and hope that the people around you are going, you're doing a great job. Or maybe lead you down a different path that might open another door that makes you do a better job. I mean, that's the great directors that I've ever worked with. That's what they do. And your fellow actors do the same thing. So respect the text respect each other and the work should thrive well and we're very lucky because this is a three-hander there's three people in this play and all three of them are insanely talented actors and very generous teammates Mm -hmm. as you have to be in a cast and they work 
very well together. So honestly, as a director for this, my biggest thing is to stay out of their way unless somebody's <laughs> going to fall over. You know right. what I mean? Uh, I, you know, it sort of seems to me that the biggest thing the director has to do is be the outside eyes of the entire thing. You know, uh, serving the story and telling the story well in all aspects. And the actors do a lot of that for you. You just guide them when you need yeah. to or feel, you know. And and this group, they don't need me. Well, <laughs> they don't need me there. They're doing such great work all on their Scott own. Scott Page, who's done many things at the Playhouse, a wonderful actor, is playing the American Adam. She's name is on purpose. And then John McWilliams, who was one of the very first quote-unquote child actors I ever met at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival. He was the caroler in A Christmas Carol and his incredible parents every day would drive him up from Selma, Alabama to be there for rehearsal. And he would be doing his homework in the van on the way home. And John McWilliams is works at Montgomery Academy. He's a assistant president or something. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he's like runs the show. We all know that. But, right, of course. But he's a fabulous actor. And, and it's just, to me, I don't get a chance to work on stage with these guys because that's just the nature of the union and right. my situation. But luckily enough, with this particular thing, my professional union said, of course, it's a fundraiser. You're donating your work. And uh, what better way to do it than with two people you've worked with before and someone I care deeply about directing us. And it's not about staying out of our way. It's, <laughs> it is, you, though. When they're no, but I'm thinking, great. does that work? Is that going to work? You know, it's... Yeah. But it's an amazing play, and, and that's the main thing. And roughly, how many ear, years has it been... Years has it been? Still really haven't got enough sleep today. <laughs> how many years has it been in the acting profession for you, Greg? For me? Yeah. It's going on to 40 now. And I... I, I have think, to. I, I think. I have to yes. ask this question. At starting to see Sarah when you're and you know, early on as a kid, what is it like to see your daughter go into the profession you've done for forty years? It's incredible. Incredible. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I, I you know I worry about I always I worry about both our kids, all our kids. Oh, we have, I have a, right. we have a grandson now. You worry about them all the time. Of course. You want them to go to the candy store, they don't exist anymore really, and come home safely with the change. Yes. You know, you with want the change. That. So the professional side of the business is not fun for anyone. Hmm. The hustle never stops and it's heartbreaking to to have someone you care about so much go up for something totally prepared, totally professional, and, you know, you don't get it. I mean, and I've been through that, too, so I understand that as well as anybody else who's going through it, but with someone who's in your family, you go, ah, right. it's heartbreak. Well, but I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to both of my parents because they... I've, I have met and know several people in this profession or aspiring to be actors that are students now whose parents are not supportive of that right. choice because it is a difficult profession and, right. and it involves a lot of struggle and a lot of people don't succeed, not for lack of trying. That's just the way it is. It's not an easy gig, you know, but my parents never knowing firsthand how difficult it was going to be they never discouraged me from it they never they were always supportive of it and you know i knew i could call dad after the world's worst audition and he would actually fully understand yeah. how i was feeling cuz he's experienced it you know so i'm i'm incredibly grateful for that and hmm. and to know that 
I can I can call him with the exact details of the bizarre world that we live in, and he will understand it every bit. He can't. He can more than empathize. He can sympathize. Well, and it's it has to be a crazy profession um, because I've I mean watching interviews. I recently with the Oscars, the Hollywood Reporter does a great those roundtables uh, interviews. They'll throw up on YouTube, and even some of the biggest names in the world, it, most of the time it's been no, right? Been, no, you you're not good for this. Part. Oh, absolutely. No, you can't. You can't. What do, do you mean that. no? Of course yeah. I can play that part. Well, and even if you can play that part and you're perfect for it, you may just not no. be the one that gets it. Right. All the success that actors have in the business. We have dear, dear friends who have done very, very well. I mean, I'm, I've been incredibly lucky. Thank God right. I've never had to do anything else. It's, there's all sorts of reasons for that. But that hustle, because it's just you and that job and there's someone on the other side of that table or behind that camera is going to go, nah, nah. I just, it's not going to work. Well, I've heard there are actors that are fantastic but they can't do auditions. Well, there is that problem too. And that just has to be, I mean, part of you has to be like, who are these? I know they actually are Mm. important. They're the ones casting. That's a big part of productions, but it's like, who are you? There are people who make a living training actors Mm-hmm. How to audition them? It's a huge industry. Man, no, no, you can't. I mean, That's when you, nothing tells me. Okay, I understand this business. When somebody like Marlon Brando has to audition for Francis Ford Coppola for the role of Don Corleone in The Godfather, he had to do a screen test. Now there were other reasons why. Coppola wanted because he hadn't seen Marlon Brando in a while. Okay, and, you sure. know, the reputation is what it is. Yeah. But you, I mean, I'm thinking seriously. Right. And I wonder why I just have to go in and read for this. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, to me, too, is uh, like Sarah was saying, the family and the support that is important and given unconditionally. And the advice is given when asked for, not... It always has... Never unsolicited. Oh, that's oh, no, good. That's a bad idea. <laughs> um, I've coached enough players in soccer and basketball. No, no. Just, that's a different thing. But it's about... That's your core. That's what you go back to. That's your family. The, and getting back a little bit to someone who watch over me, that is a huge element of the play. Yes. The family that is not there now. And that is all they talk about. For There's a section of the play where they write letters home. Mm. That is extraordinary. And the whole... Brian Keenan talks about this, but Frank McGinnis especially is um, the father. The presence of the father in the play is palpable. Hmm. All of them. Well, no, Adam... How does his... His bit when he's... Oh, huge thing about mom, too, but I... But the foster kids and the whole... Oh, no, and I'm just talking about the the hostages themselves talk about the how much they miss their family, but there's something about that father thing hmm. that is... Like missing father, or...? Well, well he's certainly missing now. Well, sure. Right. And then, then the, the British... Hostage has a huge thing about his mother, who is still living. At least he thinks that. See, this is the thing. You have no news from the outside. Nothing. So you're relying on your mind to somehow stay focused on what you have and what you miss and what you've lost. 
and that line between all those things is is the is the um, touchstone of sanity versus madness, and that's there's so much of the play about that. The games and the stories they tell and the jokes are about maintaining some kind of sanity. If I can keep my sense of humor, I must be all right. If I've right. lost that, or if I've lost what language means and the use of words as a, as a way of connecting, if I don't have that, right. what do I have? And, and who am I? Is this and who are you? Is this existence literally just sitting in this room with right. two strangers? And if I don't have the anchor point, something as deep as a relationship with a parent right. or uh, the outside world in, in general. I, yeah, I mean, it's amazing the depths of how people think death is the worst thing. It's amazing how deep suffering can go to the point of things you wouldn't normally think of as suffering. It's not the blood and guts that you see in some movies. It's the solid being alone. Right. How crazy that can drive a person. Yeah, well Brian Keenan talks about that in the book a lot. He says it's not the it's not the loneliness. Hmm. It's the longing. Hmm. Which is a different thing entirely. Absolutely. I refuse to be lonely. I'm smart enough to be solitary. But that doesn't make the longing any less. Right. And I'd imagine that if you okay you're facing these captors if it was some big heroic overcoming of the captors like there's going to be some showdown or battle that's one thing but i imagine it's it's the there's one the sound and the fury william faulkner the the quentin the brothers going insane it's the ticking of the clock that's right it's the little things that drive you crazy right. Right. that passage of time knowing that uh, it doesn't matter how i don't even have a clock to judge what time there is, is. no clock it, so yeah. they count the days well, it's sort of it's sort of absurdist theater in a way. You know, you've got waiting for Godot, where they wait and they wait yeah, and they the wait wilderness. and they wait and they don't know if Godot will ever show up, or or you know, Sartre, or you know, hell is other people. Yeah. We're just the three of us. Another three hander play. How the three of us for could be all eternity are going to survive in this room together? Wait, are we? Are you talking about this room? This very room. <gasps> this radio the studio. Three of us in this room. <laughs> Thankfully, there are padded walls. I mean, I told them to lock it after we came in, but we got to hit a quick uh, break. Uh, but again, Greg Thornton, Sarah Thornton are my guests this evening, and we'll come back right after this. Oh, and the album of the day, Resistance by Muse, and this is Guiding Light. Joey Clark. favorite songs in the last few years undisclosed desires and uh, apparently sarah thornton loves it too jamming out 
dance party over here. I love the turn these guys took. They're like this kind of almost have a punk feel, but also they, they're classically trained. So they had this heavy sound for all their first few albums. And they started getting into electronic technology. And uh, this is one of their best goes with that. They go a little too far in some of the next albums. Uh, but again, the album is Resistance by Muse. That was it, It's weird, I think, stick in your memory. We were talking about that earlier. And thank God I am not you know, locked up and being held captive. Uh, but, you know, it's funny to me that in my privileged life, when things are driving me crazy, like, say, politics, um, very much in political despair, political identity crisis, what do I believe, who do I stand with, uh, the one group of people, if you could call them a group, uh, is comedians. Uh, the one thing that it's, well, I was talking to you all about wrestling off air, and I'll talk about that tomorrow night with some folks, but it's... Anything that comedians talk about, there's something about that space where you can even say the most outrageous thing, mm. but you know you're in this jokey space. It's safe. Yeah. And it, and sort of. Well, you talking about... Until the, the lawsuits come. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and you don't want to have like a, what was a Michael Richards moment. Oh, sometimes true insanity yeah, comes you, out. you don't want that. Uh, but it, it's interesting, too, you were mentioning with a good director, they let you feel safe to try different approaches right. out. And I think that's the great thing about comedy when you are surrounded by good comedians. Right. You can sort of, you know, jam, figure it out. Have you seen any of the Jerry Seinfeld show, The Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? Absolutely. Have you seen, oh, I'm addicted to that show, but I love how they discuss their craft, because it is a craft comedy. I I knew a handful, not many, of stand-up comedians in New York City that I would work with in bars and restaurants, because they're in the same hustle as actors are, and I could never do that. It's, you know, it's terrifying. It's one thing to get on stage and do a play that you know, Hamlet, you know, you know, you're not going to... Speaking gonna, of stand-up comedians. Speaking of stand-up <laughs> comedians, <laughs> Hamlet, um, but but they get up there and I've and I've gone to try to support them and on nights when their audience is not receptive oh. that is a kind of brutal Death. embarrassment well it's the most I would naked. never be able to it's, survive I mean, yeah it's just you it's and the material and an audience you hope to God is going to laugh at something right. I can't imagine anything more raw naked than trying to be a stand up comic well and thinking about it with the play as someone who will watch over me Mm -hmm. uh, overcoming sort of personal, overcoming boundaries from you know different backgrounds. Um, I was watching an interview with of Larry David uh, being interviewed, and he was uh, the interviewer made a great point to him. Uh, is like, you'd think your show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, or at least the way a network exec would look at it, it's like a weird niche Jewish show. But no, it's it has it's popular with all demographics, most ages of people. And he said a good rule in comedy is the more personal you get and you can effectively bring an audience to that moment where they're like your friend, the more personal you get, the more universal it comes, strangely. Right. Right. So if you say, all mothers do this, you immediately have an audience going, oh, my mother doesn't do that. Yeah, but if you just talk about your mother, the person says, oh, my mom is like that. That's right. right. Yes. It, it's like right, you, right from what you know. Exactly. Well, yeah. Oh gosh, Larry David's so so genius though because his just general frustration with oh, all things, it. everyone can identify with it. Even if it, the the unique circumstance in which he's frustrated seems outrageous, his sheer 
disdain for others is so funny to me. He doesn't suffer fools, that's for it's sure. So well, that funny. he brought that to Seinfeld too. I mean, oh, Jerry yeah. Seinfeld's amazing with that stuff when he just throws his arms up. Oh, and Jason Alexander's and essentially could, doing an impersonation. Himself. Himself. Oh, right, he is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, isn't it? Seinfeld surrounds himself with fools. Right, it's just kind of amazing. Well, and uh, <laughs> I, I, Larry David actually said the character on Curb. And they're like, "Is that you?" He's like, "Well, number one, that character couldn't you know produce and uh, write right. that show. <laughs> not as smart as me." But <laughs> he, he said that I actually aspire to be that guy. Uh -huh. I wish I was that honest. Uh -huh. Right? And he go. said, "As honest as he is, that's how dishonest I am." Oh wow! And it's interesting how like a great piece of writing, in particular, like plays like I love and forgive me if I mention this I, I talk all the time and I forget who I mentioned it to but I love Aaron Sorkin's writing me sure too. and Sorkin has that he almost creates his own language but it it isn't like normal conversation it's a little bit elevated right. yeah, it's very smart yeah very smart and he claims I'm not that smart it, like with West Wing, he says, I'm not the politically sophisticated. I get somebody who is, I talk mm. to them for a little while, I hear how they talk, I use, hear the jargon they and use, and I put it to work yeah. in my usual model. Stuff. Um, and I don't know, he, he sort of flippantly says, yeah, all you need to do is read Aristotle's Poetics. That's all you need in there. I'm like, to become to make a, you a good writer? And to be a good dramatist. Right, well, and I'm like, hmm. maybe. I've read it. <laughs> it's a dense 60 pages. I'm like, I don't know. I'm not writing anything. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, Aaron Sorkin's adapting To Kill a Mockingbird. Really? And Jeff Daniels is playing Atticus in New York on Broadway. I'm going, my friend. I am going. It uh, goes into previews in November. And that's like my three favorite things. <laughs> to Kill a Mockingbird and Aaron Sorkin and Jeff Daniels. I'll be there. I might grab onto the wing of the plane. Come on, man. Let's go. My I've got to see that, you know? I can't that'll even be, imagine. That'll be incredible. Such a great story. Are there folks that in the profession that y'all really look up to? So this oh person gosh. is just unworldly. How much time do you have? <laughs> oh, we've got about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, of course. And for different reasons, I think. Um... I don't, boy, that's a, you know, who's on your short list? I, right. I mean, I don't, I mean, I've got all sorts of people that I, that I love to watch and love to work with. And, but yeah, I mean, the more, the newer stuff is you're talking about the Oscars that just happened. I mean, some of the, some of the people who are doing the work now, the newer up and coming, whatever up and coming means anymore, I have no idea. But I mean, I, we were talking about, um, three billboards. I mean, Frances McDormand just blows me out of the water. Because she just, she's about as honestly raw as any actor I've ever seen. It's just like, and you could tell even when she's and we don't know her but you see her on, on when she receives an award that's, I get, that's her. Right. She doesn't mess around. You know, and uh but her performance in that film and a number of other films. I mean, she's she's married to Joel Cohen, so she, that's not a bad combination. Right. Their stuff's amazing. You know, and I mean, I don't know. It's just like, who is the actor? George Clooney? I mean, I, I'm, I don't know. It's tough. I could go down the list. I mean, who are the people you watch to see they never disappoint? Right. I will watch anything they do. Right. Yeah. Well, and it is such a, a movie in particular, is, uh, and I, I think the same for plays, but a movie is such a group right. project. 
Um, yeah, a lot of which the actor has no control. Exactly. Over. Exactly. Um, but you know, I mean, you mentioned George Clooney. It's not even like I think an incredible movie in terms of like winning Oscars, winning awards. But when Ocean's Eleven comes on oh, the remake, I'll watch it every time. It's gonna be great every time. Yeah. What a just, cast! I like the heist. Yeah. What is it? Carl Reiner. He's my favorite. As Saul, he's my favorite character. I'll watch oh, him Reiner. over and over again on repeat. How he goes into character in Funny character. Funny man. Oh, I love yeah. that stuff. Oh gosh, yeah, that list, Julie. Oh, that's tons a tough of actors one. and writers yeah. and directors. Yeah. You know, I tend to be as an as an actor. I study the actresses who do things I find captivating. Hmm. You know, I, Kate Blanchett. Yes. For me, she never disappoints. But there's something in her stillness that I find captivating she she has she'll barely move her eyebrow and it says volumes and you know i always when i'm teaching the kids at the playhouse or wherever i always say stillness is power especially on stage because it's a very different medium the camera catches everything but on stage you have to be a bit heightened in your movement right. and your voice and all these things so if you're constantly moving your movements don't mean anything but if you find stillness and then you move then it means something, right. you know? So I that's actresses that are still... Helen Mirren, as a human being and as an actor, I just... Anything she touches is gold to me. Uh, you know, she was in the Oscars. Did you guys see... Did you watch the Oscars? I didn't know that. She was actually. doing like oh. a Vanna White of a speedboat at one point, and it was <laughs> no, my favorite part the of the... The prize <laughs> to the shortest... Uh, Accepted speech. Got a speech. Jet ski, <laughs> and she was showing up. And, and she just was standing next to it. She didn't even say anything. Just a good and it was sport. gold. She's a good sport. That's I think people that are talented, but also are good, kind people. To me, right. you know, I think they stick out in my head as people I aspire to. Absolutely. Well, and I want to do some more kind of just trivia, uh, like best movie, but then also like guilty pleasure movie. Oh boy! Yikes! Best movie ever. Yeah, and it's, I mean, those questions are silly, I know. No, they're not silly. I mean, because and you can answer how you like. Um, but, like, what you think is, like, the best movie you've ever seen, but then the movie that you like to put on, you don't always tell people that you put it on. Oh, I have to go first? <laughs> um, well, I can, I, there are a lot of best movies for me. There are, there are, you know what, I'll say right now in my life, a movie that if I'm clicking through the television and it's on, and I, of course, own it, but... Forrest Gump. Oh, no. I will watch Forrest Gump anytime. I love that movie. I love everything about it. Guilty Pleasures, I've got a lot more. <laughs> I've got a lot of those. Um, I'm a big Jane Austen fan. And I, I don't. this isn't really anything I'm guilty to admit. I'm a big Jane Austen fan. And I think Emma Thompson's adaptation of Sense and Sensibility is like when I'm sad, I watch it. When I'm sick, I watch it. When I'm happy, I watch it. I, that movie is just... And maybe I should be embarrassed, but I'm not, darn Why? it. No, <laughs> it's stuff. a beautiful movie. And Well, Wizard of Oz was always one uh, of my, yeah. and still is, one yeah. of my favorites. And I'm, I'm God help me, old enough to remember that, I mean, one of the great things to be able to see was when she wakes up after the tornado and... The wick, she's killed the Wicked Witch and yes. all the munchkins come around and all of a sudden there's color. Yes. Well, I mean, we have take. I mean, we take that for granted now. But when you're actually growing up and you don't have a color television and the first time you actually see that in That's color remarkable. is like, whoa. 
Wow. The woe moment. It's like, yeah, Wizard of Oz is brilliant. Isn't there a movie, is Jeff Daniels, that they play with? Uh, Pleasantville. They oh, play yeah, with that. with yeah. black and white. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, oh gosh, I just heard about this. Oh, sorry, I want to hear your Great. guilty pleasure movie oh, first. I'm not even please. sure how to answer that question. What makes you feel really guilty when you watch oh, it? <laughs> well, my, my wonderful wife is a saint and Sarah's beautiful mother. Yes. I do a lot of traveling. So we have a, we have an, it's never, it's unwritten, but I don't think we've ever broken this, is that you cannot watch a movie that I haven't seen. You can't go somewhere and see a movie. That is a great rule. It is a great rule. Yeah. But then the problem becomes, if you're out on the road and like, all right, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. I had to call my wife because we were in St. Louis doing this wonderful Irish play called Dancing in Lunasa, and Schindler's List had just come out. And it was at, it was considered, you know, I mean, my God, Schindler's List is an extraordinary film. And it was at this movie theater, an art house right. in St. Louis. So we were in Montgomery. And I thought, well, Schindler's List will be in Montgomery for like two days. <laughs> I'm sure I was wrong about that, but that's my prejudice. And I, so I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go see this, okay? And... I won't tell you about it. She says, well, all right. Mm. But see, you know, DVDs and, and cable and Netflix have changed all that. So, yeah, well, that was one. That's one of my. You okay. feel guilty. That's the, oh, I hate to say I have guilty pleasure by watching Schindler's List. <laughs> but it's just that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't know. Gosh, I mean, I'm a political junkie. Yeah. So give me films that deal with that. I okay. love all that stuff. Okay. I really do. Well, and then you mentioning Schindler's List. It's one of those movies that is remarkable, but it's it's kind of like you got to get up for it. Oh, yeah. it's dark. It's like, I mean, uh, it's and it's you can't just throw on Schindler's List. Right. And it's true. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> right. It's not a whole lot dissimilar from this play. Is not doesn't have the sledgehammer feel that Schindler's List does, but um, dealing with situations as in extremis. You know, at the right. worst possible places you could be and finding some way to survive and to never yield and, and, and to conquer. Yeah. That is the thing that these three men help each other get through because they all feel the same way. It takes you, time to realize This that. group, these Arabs, those boys, as Edward always refers to them, they're not going to put us down. They're not going to break us. Mm. We'll break each other before they break us. That's part of the weaponry of the play, too, that's oh, wow. that I love. There's something in the first scene, I think it is, right? You do your, you, you do should your be able to, to do your worst to me, and I'll do, and I'll my, do worst my worst to you. to you, and that way they won't... That way they can't do their worst to us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, again... Um, Friday night, Saturday night. Mm -hmm. How can folks get tickets? CloverdalePlayhouse.org, or you can call the box office at 262-1530, or just show up. House opens at 630, show starts at 730. Well, Sarah, Greg, the Thorntons. Joey, thank Thanks you very much. Thanks for having much. us, Joey. Oh, thank you for being on the show, and this was a, this is a so lot of treat fun. the wide-ranging. Oh, I'm all over the place. <laughs> It's great. Well, I mean, it's it's because I'm the shallow pool. No, stop. I reach out everywhere. I need to be more prepared, though, for gu the guilty pleasure <laughs> movie that you always watch. Mm. Oh, man, you know what else is good when almost famous? Oh. Yeah. Oh, I love that, that movie. That one.
That is a great movie. That movie great is cast. remarkable. What a cast that is. Oh, that, that is. That tiny dancer scene on the bus, forget it. They're not groupies, they're muses. <laughs> we inspire the music. <laughs> we're well, here for the music. Folks, thank you for listening tonight. Tomorrow night, we're going to continue this theme and talk about WrestleMania. Later. Yeah, no.